as he was serving overseas has been trying to ascertain God's will for his life in the area of ministry. He's gone before our area uh, council and ministry for our area as well as the regional area. He will be going online uh, taking seminary classes beginning this fall through the Lincoln Christian Seminary out of Illinois. Sometimes he'll have to go to their campus, but he'll get to do a lot of that online. On top of being a father and a husband and being a part of the Army Reserves and just changing jobs and working for a new company, Net Data, out of Sulphur Springs. But I asked him, you know, we talked about spiritual gifts and calling and church calling out gifts. Uh, I wanted him to come preach. This is going to be officially his first sermon he's preached. You get to hear that today. We're going to be blessed by it. I've already heard it. You're in for a real blessing. So, Bill, in just a moment, uh, you come and give us God's word for today, and God bless you. Our sermon reading this morning is from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20 and 23 through 26. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the old prophets has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he said to all, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Thank you, Mike. You have a wonderful and unique gift that the Lord has blessed you with. We, we appreciate you sharing it with us. Why are you a Christian? I know the title of the sermon is, Who Are You a Christian For?, but in order to get to the who, we need to start with the why. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we're told to always be ready to give an account of the reason for our hope, or in other words, why we are Christians. Interestingly enough, while there are plenty of polls about what religion or denomination a person subscribes to, and there are even more articles and the like about why a person should become a Christian. There aren't many sources that really give statistics about why people believe what they do about Christ. In my own non-scientific way, I reflected back on, on what I've read or heard people say about why they are a Christian. And the vast majority of time, I've heard things like, he brings me peace and joy, or because he died for me, or because he loved me first. Almost as often it's something like, I owe a debt I can never repay, or some other obligatory uh, motive. 
Occasionally you'll hear youth talk about why they're a Christian by telling you, well, because my parents make me go to church. Or all my friends and family are Christians, so I'm kind of a Christian too. And rarely, hopefully very, very rarely, you'll hear an analytic like me say, because after analyzing all the data, researching all the historical facts and proofs, and calculating all the probabilities and weighing all the arguments, I've come to the conclusion he must be God. The truth of the matter is most of us respond pretty quickly with what's in it for us. I mean, after all, if somebody's thinking about becoming a Christian, that's what's going to draw them in, right? And let's face it, the Bible's replete with references to what we get out of being a Christian. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Whosoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall have everlasting life. And there are many, many, many more. But is that why we should believe? I mean, if we put together all the motives and reasons and arguments and agreements why someone would want to become a Christian, you could divide them into about three good relationship categories. It's what we'll talk about today. Us to others, us to ourselves, and us to God. Now, many, if not most of us in the sanctuary started attending church as children. And if you're like me, your home church was where your parents took you, and you went there because that's where your parents wanted you to go. For many of us, this was the start of learning exactly what it meant to be a Christian. Now, for others, you may have started your journey because someone invited you to attend a church service, and then another, and then more. Or maybe you found yourself convicted of the life you were living and needed to make a change. So you started attending yourself. The story of our lives all vary, but for the most part, we seem to gain an understanding of what it means to be a Christian by our experience and the relationship to others around us. Now, people whose motivations are based upon their relationship with others may come to a level of faith, but it's without really understanding the full nature of what it means to be a Christian. Now, such was the case with the Samaritans we read about in John 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It's an okay place to start. Any place is a good place to start, right? But we don't want anyone to stay there too long. And just look at what it says in verse 42 after that. It says, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we now know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Without a deeper understanding, things like peer pressure and status, motivations based on those around us fade fairly quickly. And they don't sustain through the stumbling blocks of life. People who don't move beyond these types of superficial motives rarely find true faith, and when temptations strike, or the winds of changing attitude move to something else, they scatter with the wind like the chaff from the wheat. Christians must move beyond being primarily motivated by others in order to make that deeper connection with Christ that we all long for. Now us to ourselves, that's a great motivator, right? I mean, think about it. 
there's so much out there to choose from. Avoiding hell. Now, that's a real good one, right? Joy despite our circumstances. Indescribable peace through tough times. Never being alone. Power to carry on and make it through when there's just no way we could do it on our own. Hope. Love. There's just a great wealth of things that God has to give to us. And it's free. He's just giving it away. We don't have to earn it. Or deserve it. He freely gives it to us because he loves us. Many times we don't even have to ask. Blessings are often ways that we receive encouragement and resources to endure through the hard times. And as I mentioned before, there are things that we most often point to when we're talking with non-believers about our faith and why they might want to experience it for themselves. And all of those things are really, really good. Then there's also those feel-good blessings. You know, the ones that come from the things that we do. We often feel good about having come to church and belted out our beloved hymns with those around us, helping out a fellow church member in need, or volunteering to help out on some project or church mission or something of the like. And to be honest, don't we think sometimes we've earned a few good blessings here and there? I mean, really, deep down, when we're being really good, we're reading our Bible regularly, we're praying regularly and earnestly, we're really honestly focused on trying to make Christ the center of our lives. Don't we sometimes, we believe, just we deserve just a little bit of blessing to come out of all that effort? After all, isn't that part of how we know we're operating within the will of God? Now, I can see at least inwardly some of you are shaking your heads. I'm not going to say which direction, but you see, when we focus too much on or live our lives by the blessings we're receiving, we shift the who in the wrong direction. We want more of the comfort, more of the good stuff from God, and it becomes what we look to receive rather than what we look to use. Being forgiven and experiencing grace and peace and joy, those are all powerful reasons to become and persevere as a Christian. But don't the good feelings fade just a little bit after the experience is over with? How do we get the feelings to, and those motivations to last? How does it become that rich abundance that even in adversity the Bible talks about? Okay, so maybe one way is to count our blessings. <laughs> I can still hear my mom's voice singing that hymn. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy that you're called to bear? Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. While very good, if we approach it in the wrong direction, it will keep the focus shifted to the wrong who. It keeps it us on ourselves. So why then are we told to count our blessings? Well, I alluded to a couple of really good reasons a minute ago, but there are some others. You know, for one, it's a good way to really see how unconditional God's love for us truly is. Counting our blessings also helps us get a mental framework of, attitude, of gratitude. The attitude of gratitude, actually. 
When we live in gratitude, we're much more likely to give of our blessings in a more sacrificial way. It's not obligation, it's thankfulness. We start behaving in a way that reflects acknowledgement of what we've already received versus what we have yet to receive. All the while looking forward to those things we cannot receive until our lives on this earth are closed. So in the right frame of reference, counting our blessings can help us shift our motivations and focus back to God. Likewise, blessings are often given as a way that we can be blessings to others. They're often the way that God works his will, both in our lives and the lives of those around us. Think about that for a second. His will. His will. Now, did we just shift our focus just a little bit? A child seeking to get all its wants and needs met from its parents has a persistent focus on its own welfare, even to the exclusion of those around it. Similarly, a focus on what we get out of being a Christian is like being a spiritual child, a child that must grow. We must mature in our understanding, our depth of relationship and faith, and in our ability to contend for the faith. Remember that passage from 1 Peter a while ago? It's that understanding that allows us to deepen our relationship and live more fully for God. Growth beyond self is what enables full use of our spiritual gifts, putting them to use for God's kingdom without thought of personal gain, but rather the salvation and gain of others. That sort of brings us around to that third relationship category I mentioned, us to God. Taking those talents and skills we've been blessed with and putting them to use for the Lord is a good way to put more focus on and get more motivation from God. That's part of why I really liked what Rick did with those questionnaires designed to help us discern our spiritual gifts. It helps us figure out the, the kinds of things that we can and should be doing. It's based upon the nature and talents or gifts that God has blessed us with. Another way to look at it is this, that it's based upon the nature and the motives that God has placed within us to more naturally be motivated by and for him. It's fun, right? Well, okay, let's look back at what Luke has told us about what Jesus had to say about our motivations. Jesus first asked the questions, who do people say that I am? And then more pointedly, who do you say that I am? He's getting to the root of understanding the who. Because here's the thing, if the disciples didn't have it clear in their hearts and minds, and that goes for us today, just who Jesus was, then the who of their, and therefore our, motivations wouldn't be properly placed. For example, Elijah was a great prophet, a man of God I could only dream to become someday. Yet, any motivation that I get from his life and testimony is but a drop in the bucket. It certainly doesn't outweigh my own cares and desires. Now the Messiah, on the other hand, that's a whole different thing altogether, isn't it? 
I think that's why Jesus wanted to get that straight before he really started opening about what was and is to come. With the right who firmly seated, the instructions that followed in the second part of our reading have much more depth of meaning. Look at verse 24. The translation of my Bible has it this way. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. The Lord God, through the Messiah, his son, tells us that the only way to our eternal well-being, everlasting life, is through laying it all down as our own and living it out as his. Then he follows follows it up in verse 25 with a little more clarity. He asks, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? It's a reminder that this earth is only our temporary dwelling place. So our self-centered motives for things here and now are not the things we're going to want in the future. He tells me that the way to get the most for me is to give up me and be him through me. Wait, what? Hold on. Let Let me say that one again. The way to get the most for me is to give me up and be him through me. So how do I do that? Well, actually, he's told us in verse 23, just prior, and I think he's trying to give us that whole, that whole picture. We're to take up our cross, not just once, but daily. It's not a payment plan. It's a process. To get and keep our focus, our motivations on the right who, so that we're doing the right what for the right why. While taking up our cross has a tone of discomfort, maybe even pain in it, one has to ask if that's all all it means, suffering for Christ. I think the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. Have you ever been around people who just got saved? I mean, I know we're in a church and, and that kind of thing, but I mean, those people who just really got saved, uh, you know, it, they're the ones that seem to catch on fire for the Lord. A bonfire, roaring, hot, out of control. The ones who can't wait to tell everybody just how great the Lord is and how blessed everyone is. Bless you and bless you and bless me. They just can't seem to stop talking about God this and Jesus that. It seems like every other sentence starts or ends with the phrase, Praise the Lord! Or my personal favorite, sweet baby Jesus. Don't they just annoy the stuffing out of you sometimes? Then again, somewhere in that small corner of our hearts, aren't we somehow just, just a bit jealous that we aren't that way? At least not anymore. Actually, truth be told, many of us probably have a hard time remembering when we were really that way in the first place. I mean, a specific memory when we were just so overflowing with the Holy Spirit that we just couldn't contain it. We couldn't keep it in anymore. When we were that crazy Jesus person that everyone came in contact with, knew about it, and we didn't care. We wanted it that way. So completely undignified, almost, no, actually embarrassing 
especially to others. You can't possibly take them seriously, can you? Or can you? I mean, why is that person so out there anyway? Maybe they're that seed in the shallow soil that springs up and ever so quickly dries up and blows away. Then again, maybe not. Maybe it's the realization of salvation that has overflowed their cup and the experience is just so enormous they can't contain it. Like the rivers of flowing waters that Jesus told the Samaritan woman about. Maybe they are actually dead to themselves and living for the Lord. The who isn't them. It's God. As Paul told the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe, just maybe, it's you and I that have gotten just a little comfortable with the blessings of our lives and our salvation. And our focus has started to shift back to living our lives for our benefit rather than for Christ living in and through us. I know I certainly think about my own comfort way more than I should. I'm busy planning out how I'm going to get through seminary while balancing all the demands of work and finances and military and wife and children and on and on and on. And I know many of you are even busier than I am. If you're like me, occasionally there, there may be times where you feel just a little bit guilty of where your focus has been. The who you've been living your life for. So how did we change that? How do we, how do we get the focus back? Not just this Sunday afternoon or at a Bible study or church meeting, but day to day. I think we start by reminding ourselves of Jesus' words and learning what it truly means to take up our cross daily. That is using the talents we've been blessed with to further his kingdom. Finding ways to share the truth of what we know, using all of the blessings we've received, not for ourselves or for our own comfort, but to bless those around us. When we fully seek to let Christ live through our lives, the who changes to where it belongs. When the who is where it belongs, we're not worried about what someone might think. We're not afraid to be Jesus' people. We're not burdened by the guilt of our sins and our inadequacies. We're, we understand because Christ uses those very things to magnificently display the awesome power that God has to use our brokenness to his greater glory. And the more we understand and truly believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, the more we let go of our motives of guilt and personal welfare and begin to shift the focus of our lives to behaviors that more closely reflect the embodiment of Christ, especially to those whose lives we touch. As I mentioned earlier, when we're living our lives for the right who, we'll be doing the right what for the right why. So this morning I ask you, who are you? Who are you?